thank you for tuning into this episode, which is my very first episode of the Our View podcast. I thought it was most appropriate to start off the podcast with explaining a little bit about my life and my story um, and my diagnosis of living with spina bifida. So in order to do that, I think it is necessary to firstly start off with the definition of disability. So according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a disability is a physical, mental, cognitive, or developmental condition that impairs, interferes with, or limits a person's ability to engage in certain tasks or actions or participate in typical daily activities and interactions. The World Health Organization uh, defines disability as a disability is any condition of the body or mind and impairment that makes it more difficult for the person with the condition to do certain activities, has an activity limitation, or an or interact with the world around them, which in parentheses says participation restrictions. I like both of those definitions. I think both of them truly um, identify what it means uh, for most people to have a disability. Uh, I personally, in referring to myself when I talk to people about myself, I, I like to mention that I have spina bifida as one of the last things that I mentioned uh, about myself. I like to tell them other things about me. I, I'm a son, a brother, a friend, an uncle, uh, that I'm funny, that I like to do a lot of fun things. And then I will say, and I have spina bifida. I personally, just myself as one person with one perspective, I don't like to say that I'm disabled because in my mind, I when I hear the word disabled, I think of a car, a disabled car that, and a disabled car can't move, can't do anything. And one of my main goals of creating our view was to change the tone of conversation when you talk about people who have disabilities. And I think that's one stereotype, one perception of people who have disabilities is that they don't do much, they can't do much. And, uh, that's, that's one of my top goals to uh, change that perception and change that tone of conversation. So through this podcast, I hope that I am able to share my story and the story of others to uh, give you a different perspective and, and show you what uh, people with disabilities, what they are doing in the world and how they are succeeding and successful in life and they are really uh, mastering this, this thing called life that we all uh, must go through. So spina bifida is a diagnosis that falls within a category of neural tube defects. So the neural tube is what actually develops into the central nervous system of the body. It, uh, the neural tube begins to develop uh, in the fetus very early on uh, in the pregnancy, and neural tube defects actually occur normally within the first month of pregnancy, which is before the mother knows that she is even pregnant most of the time. Uh, and what happens with a neural tube defect is that it interrupts the development of the brain and the spinal cord of the fetus. 
and uh, spina bifida falls into this category of neural tube defects. Uh, there are a few different types of uh, spina bifida. The first uh, type of spina bifida is called occulta, so it's spina bifida occulta, and uh, that is thought to be the mildest form of spina bifida, and it occurs uh, in 10 to 20 percent of the general population. Uh, one of the interesting things about spina bifida occulta is that occulta actually means hidden, so a lot of people don't even know that they have this type of spina bifida, and it is often found only after a, uh, an x-ray is performed on the spine, which is usually, uh, the x-ray usually takes place because of something else that is going on, and the x-ray is then ordered, and then they can see that the uh, spinal column has some type of uh, malformation uh, in some type of way, and they can then be diagnosed with spina bifida occulta, which uh, I happen to know two people actually who have this form of spina bifida and they were not uh, diagnosed with this until they were in adulthood. So a second type of spina bifida is called meningocele, which is um, diagnosed, uh, at diagnosis you can see the uh, spinal fluid and meninges that will protrude through an abnormal opening in the, along the vertebrae. And this is thought to be a more severe form of spina bifida. Some symptoms that often accompany this form of spina bifida include complete paralysis and also issues with bowel and bladder functions. The third type of spina bifida is the type of spina bifida that I have, which is called myelomeningocele. This is the most this is the most severe form of spina bifida, and it occurs when the spinal cord and neural endings are actually exposed through an opening in the spine. And sometimes it's uh, accompanied by a sac that appears on the outside of the body. So you can actually see uh, part of the spine and the neural uh, elements on the outside of the body. And uh, this also can uh, appear and show its symptoms as uh, incomplete paralysis and also with uh, the bowel and bladder uh, complications. So the main thing to note about spina bifida, or one of the main things to note, I should say, is that the opening on the spine, the uh, deformation of the spine can occur anywhere along the spinal column. It can occur high up uh, in the neck area and it can occur down lower toward the uh, end of the spinal cord. And wherever that malformation occurs, that determines uh, the severity of the symptoms that will occur uh, based on uh, where this hole is located on the person's back. Um, another thing that can also occur with uh, people who have spina bifida and people without spina bifida is a condition called hydrocephalus. So with hydrocephalus, the cerebrospinal fluid does not um, leave the brain, so it causes pressure to build up in the brain, and that uh, causes, uh, it's called water on the brain, that's what hydrocephalus actually means, so it can um, cause some severe issues uh, for a person, a baby, or any person who is diagnosed with uh, 
hydrocephalus uh, can cause a lot of um, a lot of issues. So with uh, hydrocephalus, it is um, they they don't know what causes hydrocephalus. Like they don't know what causes spina bifida. Um, and a person with hydrocephalus can be diagnosed at any point in their life. So uh, as I mentioned, the person does not have to have spina bifida to have hydrocephalus. There are plenty of people who have hydrocephalus that uh, do not have spina bifida. And there are people who have spina bifida that do not have hydrocephalus as well. So um, another thing with uh, the treatment of hydrocephalus is normally uh, the condition is treated with the insertion of a shunt. So the shunt uh, is a small, a small machine uh, when it is inserted is to pump the cerebrospinal fluid from the brain uh, throughout the rest of the body. The latest statistics on spina bifida say that every year 1,000 births are impacted by a spina bifida diagnosis. Uh, there are thought to be 166,000 people currently living in the United States who have spina bifida. I want to use this time to tell you all a little bit about my own story of living with spina bifida. So as I've mentioned, my name is Arthur Aston, and I was born in 1981. And upon my arrival, my parents and the doctors um, found out that I had spina bifida. They did not know this information until I was born. There weren't uh, the 3D ultrasounds and the other testing that are available now, the fetal surgery that is available currently now in 2020. I was not available back in 1981, so it was a quite a surprise to everyone um, in the delivery room that I had spina bifida. It was a great surprise to my parents as they have an older daughter, my sister Alexia, uh, who did not have spina bifida. My dad has other children from uh, previous relationships before he married my mom. None of those children have spina bifida. My mom is one of seven children. My dad is one of 10 children, and none of them have a spina bifida diagnosis. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, is one of 15 children, and none of them have a spina bifida diagnosis. So I was the first person in my family to uh, have spina bifida. So that uh, made that, like, as I said, that made a, a very uh, nice surprise for everyone. And uh, at that time, as they are still learning, even currently, they're still learning about spina bifida and the impact that it has on uh, someone's life. Uh, at that time, they still didn't know uh, much about spina bifida. So they were unable to say what exactly uh, the impact it would have on my life. Uh, as I was growing up, I remember... Uh, my parents didn't tell me this until I was much older, of course, but uh, I remember being told my, my parents were informed by the doctors that I wouldn't live past the age of 15. They said that I wouldn't be able to, uh, I, I would have learning disabilities, I wouldn't be able to walk at all, uh, that I would be paralyzed. And so I, I think a, a lot of people ask, uh, or, or mentioned, you know, oh, that was very mean of the doctors to say. 
and it it was it, you know i'm sure my parents thought it was a little harsh to uh hear that type of information uh and at the same time i think the doctors were just unaware of of what to expect so i think they wanted to uh i think they wanted to prepare my parents for all of the possibilities uh they mentioned a lot of negative things but uh thankfully through uh, the love and support of my friends and my family uh, throughout my life, I've able to I've been able to overcome a lot of those uh, challenges that they thought would uh, face me. So the type of spina bifida that I have, as I mentioned, the uh, different forms of spina bifida earlier in the episode, the type of spina bifida that I have is called myelomeningocele. So it is considered to be the most severe form of uh, spina bifida, and how it impacted me is that. I, when I was born, I had a hole in my back at the very bottom part of my back. It's the L4 area of my uh, spinal column. And uh, you could see part of my uh, spinal cord coming through, showing through uh, my back. So uh, what that means for me is that it impacted the lower half of my body. Uh, I am able to walk. I do wear... Uh, leg braces that come up to my thighs. So my leg fits into the brace. I wear one on each leg. My, my leg fits into the brace. I have a Velcro strap, uh, kind of like the old school Velcro sneakers uh, that used to be around in the 80s. Uh, so I have a Velcro strap that fits across the top part of my foot. I have another strap that goes across my knee area. And then there are two straps that uh, fit across the my thigh area. So each brace is uh, pretty heavy. So I, I do wear them most of the time. Uh, but if I'm able to get a break, if someone is able to help me, uh, if someone's able to help me in and out of my house, uh, I may go a day or so without wearing them uh, just to be, uh, just to give myself a break and not have to wear the heavy braces because they are probably six pounds a piece and it, it is very difficult for me to walk long distances with them. I also use crutches. Uh, it's, it's difficult for me to walk long distances with them because, uh, because of my diagnosis, the leg muscles don't work. So I have to actually move my legs by engaging my core muscles, which makes it hard to breathe at the same time as I'm walking. So uh, a lot of times people uh, will see me in my wheelchair if I'm doing something long distance, like walking in the mall or going to the grocery store. It just it makes it easier to, number one, to carry things. And then it also is definitely easier to, uh, to breathe and wheel in my wheelchair at the same time uh, versus walking for long distances. And then and in places like uh, the grocery store or the mall, the floors are often tile or some other type of uh, hard surface that if it gets wet, it can be very slippery for my crutches. So it is also a, um, a safety thing for me as well, because being in the wheelchair is a lot safer than walking on a wet tile floor and uh, slipping and falling. Um, another, another interesting thing about my spina bifida diagnosis is, as I mentioned, I do walk, so I'm not completely paralyzed. I'm what is called partially paralyzed. So I, I can't wiggle my toes and I can't move my feet up and down at all. I actually can't feel anything below my knee. 
So I can't feel my feet. I can't feel my calf muscles. Um, I have to be very careful and make sure that I don't um, hit my foot on anything and that my feet don't swell up. And, and if something's wrong, I wouldn't be able to feel it. If something were to break, thankfully, nothing has broken. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't be able to uh, feel the pain of that if it were to occur. So I have to make sure every day when I wear my braces, I always have to look at my legs and make sure that uh, nothing is swollen or discolored or make sure that anything doesn't look like it might be out of place where it shouldn't be. Part of my spina bifida diagnosis involved being in the hospital a lot for surgeries. So uh, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast episode, hydrocephalus is one of the complications that often occurs with a spina bifida diagnosis. So I have hydrocephalus. I do have a shunt in my head. It's on the right side of my head, uh, behind my right ear. And it's on the inside of my skull, so you cannot, uh, cannot see it. It's under my skin, so you can't see it on the outside of my body. I do have a small scar in the back of my head that sometimes people notice, and they'll ask about it. And uh, I just tell them it's, uh, it's my own little special machine that I have in my head. So, um, as I, as I said, what it does, it circulates the cerebro, cerebrospinal fluid from my brain into the rest of my body. There's a tube that's also on the inside of my body. It goes down into my stomach and the fluid is absorbed, uh, there in my stomach. So I don't know it's there most of the time. Um, the only time I do notice that it's there is uh, I live in New Jersey and sometimes we'll get uh, different high or low pressure changes in the air because of storms that are in the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, I notice that my shunt will often feel tight and uh, it, it hurts a lot. So sometimes I might have to, you know, just lay low and, and chill, chill out for a little bit. Uh, while that uh, pressure change uh, takes place and then everything seems to uh, be fine after everything levels out in the uh, atmosphere. Uh, the only time that I, thankfully I haven't had to have it revised, which is having it replaced. I haven't had that, uh, haven't had my shunt replaced since I was in third grade. So, and that was the worst headache ever, I've ever had. Uh, and the other issue with uh, the shunt malfunctioning is that it brings on a lot of the same symptoms as having the flu. So, so with the shunt malfunctioning, I had a very bad headache. I had diarrhea. I did not have a fever, but a fever is oftentimes associated with a possible uh, malfunction with the shunt. So every time I do get sick, I have to really evaluate myself and, and ask, okay, is this a cold or the flu or is something possibly wrong with my shunt? Uh, and as I mentioned, thankfully, I haven't had to have it replaced since I was in third grade. And I always remember that story because I, uh, we had a school play or a class play going on at the time. And uh, my parents just thought that I didn't want to be in the play. So I, every, every time it was time for play practice, I was oh, my head hurts and I don't feel well and I had to go to the nurse's office. And uh, 
finally one night in the middle of the night, I, um, I got up and I laid in the hallway and I was telling them I didn't feel well and everything hurt. And my dad says, okay, fine. If you're that sick, you're going to the hospital. And I replied, good. So that's when they knew that something was wrong because if even now at 38 years old, if I can stay out of a hospital, even to visit people in the hospital, if I can stay away from a hospital, I do. So I, I just really stay, uh, I, I really just didn't like the hospital because I had to be there so often for uh, doctors, uh, checkups and for surgeries. So when I, when we got to the hospital and they did an x-ray and a CAT scan, they saw that the tube that was supposed to be in my stomach doing the work of the shunt, uh, the tube had broken off because I had grown a little bit taller and, uh, the fluid that was supposed to be draining through this tube was actually just floating around uh, in my stomach and the tube had made its way and was floating in my chest area. So uh, that's why it wasn't draining properly and uh, I was getting the pressure headaches in my, in my head and that's why my, my stomach was so, so upset. Uh, another complication that I've had uh, due to my spina bifida diagnosis is my my bowels and bladder have not functioned properly so i i can remember being you know in elementary school and i still had to wear diapers or depends uh as i got older cuz i couldn't fit diapers but um i had to wear those because i had no control over when i was going to the bathroom my bladder wasn't holding anything and uh, I was well into elementary school uh, before they were able to fix this. I didn't have surgery until I was 12 or 13 years old to fix my, my bladder issue. And uh, even in an, in an attempt to fix the bladder issue of constantly leaking, I had three surgeries. <laughs> so the first two surgeries didn't work. The first surgery was uh, they injected cow collagen around the neck of my bladder to hopefully tighten it, and then I would have to catheterize to empty my bladder. Uh, that didn't work at all. Then they did a bladder augmentation, which was stretching my bladder to two or three times its normal size. Uh, so the third surgery they did is called an appendicovesicostomy which is where they took part of my appendix and part of my intestines and they made a new bladder neck. So uh, my bladder no longer leaks. And the cool thing is I get to catheterize and empty my bladder through my belly button. So I've done this uh, every day, every four to six hours each day uh, since I was 13 years old. And it's, uh, it's a cool party trick. I show some people sometimes. Um, <laughs> so it's really, uh, it's, it's just what I have to do. So uh, it's not anything strange to me anymore. It was at first. Uh, but doing it for the last however many years that is, it's, um, it's, it's really interesting to me. You know, I, I'm, I'm definitely one of the few people 
that you may know who has to urinate out of their belly button. I'm the only person that I know who has to urinate out of their belly button. So uh, now you can tell your friends that. <laughs> as far as uh, my, my bowels go without getting too graphic in this whole description, uh, I am able to control that uh, now that I am able to uh, sense a sensation. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that and that's all I'll say. Uh, <laughs> but it does help. Uh, it, it does help as with most people, my diet. So I have to eat a lot of uh, plain things. For those of you who know me who have been to lunch or dinner with me, I eat a lot of burgers or a lot of chicken fingers and fries, uh, things that I know uh, won't uh, disrupt my system. And uh, I stay away from a lot of hot or spicy things or creamy things uh, just because I know what impact they have on my system. So I uh, save those meals for when I'm home. Uh, or if I want to make it, an, I, I save those meals for when I'm at home or if I am going to make it an early night and don't have to go out uh, anywhere too far uh, because it is still uh, difficult when I eat those types of foods to control uh, my body and how it responds to those types of foods. So it's it's been an interesting journey in that way. I think that was one of the most... Um, I think that was one of the most, I would say, traumatic experiences that I've had of, you know, being a kid and still wearing diapers at 9, 10, 11, and 12 years old when, uh, you know, I knew the rest of my friends weren't. <laughs> so uh, it was something that is, it, I, I could say it was a bit of an embarrassing thing, but now... It was an embarrassing thing, but now uh, as an adult, it's easier to talk about and to discuss and to, so apparently it's easy to share with the world. Um, <laughs> this episode of this podcast is really about uh, me just opening up and, and sharing some things with you all and just so you can get to better understand what it's like as just, again, I'm just one person with spina bifida. Someone else you might know or talk to who has spina bifida will have possibly a completely different, uh, a completely different experience with uh, their diagnosis. One of the things that the doctors mentioned to my parents uh, that I would possibly have some trouble with is uh, learning disabilities. So thankfully, the only thing which I would always try to blame on my spina bifida diagnosis, uh, but it was just really because I didn't understand the stuff, was uh, I had difficulty with math, which I know a lot of people have difficulty with math. Uh, but I always remembered the doctor saying that, you know, I would have trouble with uh, learning and, and I wouldn't be able to learn like other kids. So whenever I wouldn't do well on a test, I would just try to say, uh, oh, it's because I, I have spina bifida, and my parents say, no, it's because you didn't study, which the uh, part that they mentioned was probably true. Uh, and also, I just didn't understand it. I, I don't know if it was because of 
I lacked interest in it or what, but uh, math was always difficult for me. Uh, but other than that, I really, for the most part, I enjoyed school. I enjoyed reading and writing, which is uh, something I still love doing uh, to this day. It's, um, it's June 3rd today, and uh, we've been in a quarantine here in New Jersey since sometime in March, I think. And I've uh, been out of the house five times since March 11th. So I've done a lot of reading and a lot of writing. And, uh, you know, so, so learning, thankfully, has not been uh, a big issue for me. I did, I went to a public elementary school for uh, the first six years of school. And then uh, for seventh and eighth grade, I went to a small private school, a Christian uh, private school. And then for high school, I went to uh, a, a public school that had uh, a bunch of uh, students there, well over a thousand students, which was really, uh, really a great experience. I have some of my best friends who I've known since uh, middle school and high school are still some of my best friends uh, that I have today that I talk to often that I see uh, often when we're uh, allowed outside again. I will get back to seeing them and their families. So after high school, I was able to attend, uh, which was Stockton uh, College at the time. It is now Stockton University in Galloway Township, New Jersey, and I completed a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology. I then went to uh, Monmouth University, which is in Long Branch, uh, West Long Branch, New Jersey. And at Monmouth, I completed a Master of Arts degree in psychological counseling and I think those two experiences were really great for for me personally uh, on an educational level and also in a, uh, just on a, a personal, on a personal discovery uh, experience. I was able to live on campus at Stockton. Uh, I had my own private room, which was great. It was a lot of fun uh, where everybody else had to share with roommates. Uh, I was able to live by myself, uh, which was, it, it was a great experience living on campus, having the campus life. And again, much like I mentioned uh, with middle school and high school, I met some of the greatest people uh, at Stockton who are some of my best friends today and their families who I, I get to spend time with and, uh, just have, having that on-campus experience of uh, getting a taste of living on my own for the first time and uh, just creating my own family of, of friends at, that, uh, at, the, at the college and on, on campus was really, uh, really great. And majoring in psychology helped because I, we had to do, in my master's program as well, we had to do a lot of uh, self-discovery papers and we had to uh, pick topics that related to our life and to our life story and I was able to uh, explore some of those feelings that I had around being uh, not only African-American but also being uh, someone who lives with a disability and I think that has uh, 
those two experiences of, of going to college uh, at Stockton and at Monmouth also, uh, they both helped me uh, become a better person and learn more about myself and really uh, identify with uh, who I am and, and what it means to uh, what it means to me to, to be a minority in uh, two ways as being African-American and having a disability. As I mentioned in the uh, earlier definition of disability, uh, that it limits the, uh, a disability limits the activities of daily living. So a lot of my activities of daily living are uh, limited and I have to do some adjustments for some things uh, as far as cooking and, and eating. Thankfully, my, my hands work uh, very well. My arms are very strong because I use the braces. Uh, I use the crutches to walk around uh, and I use my wheelchair. So my hands and my, my arms are, are quite strong and uh, so I'm able to eat without a problem. Cooking is uh, a little more challenging sometimes uh, because of I, I like to sit when I cook because it's more comfortable and I don't have to worry about losing my balance and starting any issues uh, with anything that's hot. Uh, so I sit uh, a lot uh, whenever I cook over the stove. But then if I'm cooking something that has a lot of splatter, like a burger or bacon, of course, I just use two um, great references to meat. But uh, if, I'm <laughs> if I'm cooking anything uh, that has a lot of grease associated with it, I'll say that, they, uh, then I have to worry about it splashing in my face. So uh, I like to cook things that, are, that can be cooked in the oven over time or on a, in a crock pot, which is uh, much, much better for me. So, uh, you know, but I love to cook. I, I cook a lot of different things. And, uh, but cooking in the oven or cooking something that can be cooked on the stove, like a uh, spaghetti sauce or uh, some other type of pasta sauce or uh, uh, cooking anything that can be cooked over a long period of time that I don't have to sit or stand over the stove, over the uh, stove and watch, I think is uh, always best for me. Um, another thing that I always get uh, another question I always get is about bathing. So I am able to bathe myself. I have just a regular bathtub with uh, a shower attached to it. And uh, where I live, I am grateful that there is a grab bar so I can pull myself up and, and over into the tub uh, if I need to. And I just, normally I... Uh, stand, uh, I say stand, but I, um, yeah, I stand on my knees. So I, I just, I kneel in, in the bathtub and shower that way. Uh, that's also how I get around if my braces are off. Uh, a lot of times I just crawl around and, and, uh, kneel and, uh, don't worry about putting my braces on too much in the house just because they're way too heavy and, um, unnecessary for me to have on in the house. And I do have a, a wheelchair here as well in the house that I use uh, just to get back and forth uh, from each room uh, that I use the wheelchair Some sometimes. I, I crawl most of the time, to be honest. Uh, 
and something else that I always get asked is, uh, what do I like to do for fun? What kinds of things do I like to do for fun? Uh, I like to do a lot of things that other people like to do. Uh, sometimes I just like to get in my car and drive and that surprises people because a lot of people hear me say my legs don't work or they don't work too well. And they say, well, how do you drive? Well, I, I use a, what's called a hand control. So it's attached to my steering wheel and it also attaches to the gas and brake pedals in the car. So a lot of people who know that I drive are not aware that the brake and gas pedal are still there. They are. I just don't like telling people that um, because then people want to drive my car. So, and I don't let anybody drive my car uh, at all except for my mom. She drives every, she drives it every now and then, but she even hasn't uh, driven my car in a long time. But uh, the hand control is attached to the steering wheel and the gas and the brake pedal. And then there is, it looks like a handlebar to a bicycle that's uh, attached to the end of it. And that sticks out from the left side of my steering wheel. So how I activate the hand control is if I push it down to the floor, that activates the gas pedal, so that makes the car move forward. And then if I push the hand control forward toward the windshield, that applies the brake. So it's just one, uh, one mechanism with two different motions where if I push it down, that moves the car. If I push it forward, uh, that applies the brake. So I do that with my left hand and steer with my right hand. So I, I love driving. I love going out for drives. It's uh, thankfully close to summertime now, and uh, my friends and family have their pools opening up, and I love to swim. Again, my legs still don't work there uh, too well at all. I'm able to, surprisingly, I'm able to put my, I'm able to stand up and put pressure on my legs in the shallow end of the pool, so I kind of do a little exercise of walking back and forth. Uh, which helps with my core muscles because I still need those to help me balance uh, in the pool. Uh, I love I, I love swimming. It's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, growing up in our house, we uh, we lived in a very small town and we had a pool uh, in our backyard. And I remember my dad. <laughs> uh, the story I was told is that he, you know, he told my mom that they have parties and cookouts all the time and I wasn't going to be the only one who wasn't swimming in my own pool. So even though my legs didn't work at four years old, probably my dad took me into our backyard, into our pool and taught me how to swim. So I use my arms uh, mostly and I do what I can to try to kick my legs. They, it, it doesn't help move me any faster or anything like that, but I will, uh, you know, do what I can just to move my legs because it does, uh, help stretch them out and, and helps with, uh, just the movement and circulation of the movement of, of the muscles and circulation of the blood in my legs. So I, I love swimming and I'm definitely looking forward to doing that, uh, this summer at, with, with some friends and family. So one of the great medical advances that they have made in the world of spina bifida in research and uh, treatments is that uh, there's something called a fetal surgery. 
Uh, they did the first fetal surgery at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia in 1998. And from 1998 to 2003, there were 53 fetal surgeries performed at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And um, the surgery, what it does is that it's, it, it's supposed, the surgery is supposed to lessen the symptoms that the child experiences uh, from having spina bifida. And what they do is before the baby is born, they go in to the womb, they remove the fetus and they close the hole uh, in the child's back. Uh, along the uh, spinal column, wherever the hole occurs, they close the hole before the baby is born. They place, they, they place the baby back into the mother, and then they wait for the mother to give birth. There is a very high risk of uh, premature birth when the uh, mother has this fetal surgery. Uh, so the mom has to stay uh, very close to the hospital, uh, in case if she does, uh, go into premature labor. I had the honor of meeting a family who, um, I, I was, I was at an event for work and I ended up talking to a, a, a mother and father who the mother was pregnant, but she, uh, had had the fetal surgery. They found out that the baby would have, uh, spina bifida through a 3D ultrasound. And they uh, chose to have the fetal surgery. And it, it was such a, a great uh, experience for me because they did not see that I came into the room in my wheelchair. I was already sitting at a table. And the way that they entered the room, they couldn't see my wheelchair. It just looked as if I was sitting in a chair like everyone else. And uh, they sat right across from me and they started uh, sharing their story Uh about their fears that they had about the child having spina bifida and uh, they were grateful to have the surgery and they were hoping that it would be uh, a success and that their child wouldn't experience any of or experience very few symptoms of uh, having a spina bifida diagnosis after uh, the baby was born. And so after they finished, I was able to share with them that I had spina bifida and uh, I saved that part of the conversation for last because, as I mentioned, they they didn't know that uh, I was a wheelchair user at that time. So I told them about who I was, what I do, and uh, told them a little bit about my story and my family. But again, I, I left out the spina bifida part until the very last uh, thing that I mentioned. And uh, the mother ended up telling me how much hope she had uh, after hearing my story and it really uh, calmed her down a lot. And at the same time, she was so upset that she uh, had shared with me all of her, her fears about uh, hoping her child wouldn't have to experience certain things. And I, I was very open with her and told her it's a real fear to have. It's, you know, it's fears that my parents had, uh, and at the same time, my parents had no time to prepare for it because they did not know that I had a disability at all So uh, until I was born. So there is a National Spina Bifida Patient Registry that was created in 2009. And the goals of this registry are, number one, to present the best practices in the latest spina bifida care, uh, also to compare 
the care that is given to the 9,000 patients who are in this registry, and also uh, to examine, and, and the last goal is to examine the 24 clinics across the country who treat uh, patients with uh, spina bifida. And, uh, I, and I really like this registry and uh, what they stand for because they conduct research studies and uh, on their website you can uh, find the current research studies that they have done between, I think it's the year uh, 2015 and, and 2019. So there are quite a few uh, studies that they've looked at and solved the different impacts of having and not having the uh, fetal surgery. is One study I wanted to make sure that I brought up uh, during this episode specifically is the MOM study, which stands for Management of Myelomeningocele Study. It involved 183 patients from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Vanderbilt University, and the University of California at San Francisco. So half of those 183 patients, they received the prenatal fetal surgery, and then the other half of the patients didn't receive surgery until after they were born to close the hole in their back. And what they did was they examined each of those uh, patients at 12 months after birth, and then they did another follow-up with them 30 months after birth. And what they found was that 40% of those who received the prenatal fetal surgery, 40% of them had to get a shunt, and that 36% of them had no evidence of hindbrain herniation. For those who didn't receive surgery until after birth, 83% of those uh, patients had to have a shunt and only 4% showed no evidence of the hindbrain herniation. Uh, when they re-examined the uh, patients who received both surgeries at 30 months after, uh, after delivery, uh, they were able to find that mobility, their mobility range was still dependent upon where the lesion occurred on their back. But out of those who received the fetal surgery, which was prenatal before they were born, 42% were able to walk without assistive devices versus only 21% of those were able to walk without assistive devices if they received the postnatal uh, surgery. So, there are two studies that are being supported by the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Uh, the, the first study is, is examining hereditary bias of neural tube defects, and the goal of that study is to find genetic factors that make some children more susceptible to neural tube defects than others. And the researchers are also looking at gene expression during the process of neural tube closures. Uh, this will provide information on the human nervous system during the development of the neural tube. And another uh, part of that is that the researchers are working on studying to identify and characterize and also evaluate genes for neural tube defects to see if, if they exist. And the goal is to understand the genetics of the neural tube closure and also to develop information that will translate into uh, better care for those who have uh, spina bifida 
diagnosis uh, and their treatment and also genetic counseling to see if there is a genetic component to why children develop spina bifida or not. That concludes this episode of the Our View podcast. Look for new episodes premiering on the 15th and 30th of every month. Be sure to follow Our View on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Our View for Life. That's O-U-R-B-I-E-W, the number four, L-I-F-E. Leave your comments about today's episode and also let us know what topics you would like for us to address in future episodes. Thanks for listening and take care.